0: good morning morning. in the uh, the crisis scene of maybe one of the better movies of my childhood Sandlot uh, Scotty Smalls has lost a baseball over a fence which at first doesn't seem like that big of a deal except for we come to find out in his words it was just signed by some lady Um, But the problem is it wasn't just signed by some ladies, it was autographed by by Babe Ruth. So he lost a Babe Ruth autographed baseball. And uh, Scotty Small's mistake was that he was fairly new to baseball, and so he had sort of been picking up on the language and the sport at the same time, and all of the other guys on the team were constantly referring to Babe Ruth by all of these different nicknames. And so he had heard uh, Babe Ruth called uh, the Sultan of Swat, the great Bambino, the King of Crash, the Colossus of Cloud. And when he hears that all these people are the same guy, he figures it out. He says, you're telling me those are all, those are all the same guy? And yes, indeed, they were all the same guy. And so he has this realization that his life is over because he, he's lost this baseball over the fence. And uh, it, we, we find, he, you know, they go through a bunch to get it back. But it's, it's destroyed at that point. And so the problem here is that um, S- Scott Smalls did not recognize uh, who the, the, the greatest baseball player was. And even though he should have been totally aware of it, he was around it all the time. He heard everybody else talking about it. But it was like in, in their talking about it and their describing about who he was and using these nicknames, he failed to recognize in the moment who Babe Ruth was. Was. And so this morning sermon, we're going to talk about this failure to recognize uh, Jesus from the Old Testament. And it comes by way of Paul preaching uh, in the first missionary journey here we have uh, in the church. And so we're going to be in Acts chapter 13, and we'll go in verses 13 through 41. That's a, a good chunk of scripture, but we're going to cover the whole sermon this morning. And so today you get a sermon on a sermon and the problem with that is that his sermon was pretty long. It's, in fact, it's the longest one we have of Paul. And uh, so I'm gonna try and commentary on that and I will move as quick as I can without leaving everybody in the dust. So help me to help you. I'll speak slowly and you listen quickly, ready? Father, pray this morning for our time in the word that you would um, calm uh, our hearts and spirits that we can focus on you, that you would help us to discern uh, your truth this morning, Father, we thank you for the truth that has been not just proclaimed, but has been recorded for us, that we can know you, and that we might, in knowing you and hearing it, that we can recognize you uh, in every area of our lives, and that you would do this work in us this morning, that we could um, apply it throughout uh, our, our going and being, and find uh, faith as a place where we rest. So, Father, this morning, I ask that you would equip us by your spirit with the things that we do not have in our natural self, which is ears that can hear your voice speaking, eyes to see you and recognize you, and hearts, the flesh, that can receive spiritual truths. So, Father, we thank you for these promises that you will do that for us. We claim them this morning in the name of Jesus. And everyone said... And then I'm a little ringy. You could help me. That would be awesome. Okay. So we're going to talk about uh, Paul's sermon here. I don't have time to recap because, again, we've got a lot of verses to cover. But there's some expectations that are going to be common throughout uh, Israel and the people that would hear the, the gospel. And so we kind of jump into the pool much, much later, like much downstream of where we are finding it happening in Acts 13. And that is seems to be for our benefit, but it actually is going to uh, sometimes truncate our full understanding of what the gospel is. And so this morning is an exposition out of the Old Testament by the words of Paul about the gospel. All right? You with me? Okay, here we go. Verse 13. Now it says, Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos. And they came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John, who is also John Mark, let them, uh, he left them and he returned to Jerusalem. And so uh, here in verse 13 is the inverse of what we read in verse 1 of last week, which was um, Saul was listed at the the back of the list of teachers and prophets, prophets and teachers that were in the church at Antioch. And he was kind of the least of these. He was the least prominent. But after the encounter that just happened with Sergius Paulus, um, uh, Paul realizes his calling. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. He performs a miracle or I should say the Holy Spirit performs a miracle through uh, Paul's hands and he becomes Paul. And now he's recognized as first. It's just Paul and the band now. It's Paul is most prominent. And so um, he's going to move into his true calling. And so they're moving about now uh, from the place where they were last, which was the island of Cyprus. And so um, we, we find out that Throughout this journey now where they're in Asia Minor and kind of going through the area that's called Galatia, um, that Paul begins to encounter some trials and they they start here and one of these trials uh, is John Mark who deserts them. And so this isn't the first that we're going to hear about this, Uh, well it's the first that we hear about it, but it's not the last we'll hear about it, let me say it that way. And so um, we'll we'll cover more about sort of the the cause of this and, and how it becomes an issue between Not just um, Paul and John, but it becomes an issue between Paul and Barnabas. And it causes them later to split ways. But that's not where we're going this morning. So Paul is the leader now. John Mark has turned back and he returns to Jerusalem. And so then we go on to verse 14. It says, and there they went from Perga and they came to Antioch. This is a different Antioch. There was something like 12 or 13 Antiochs that were all founded by the same guy who had like this. uh, He just wanted to name uh, all these cities after um, his mother. And so... That's what he did. So they come to Antioch and Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and they sat down. And after reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them. Saying, brothers, if you have a word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand. And this is supposed to like ringing the bells of familiarity because this is what Peter did in the last chapter after the prison break and everybody's so excited that Peter got released and it says he raised his hand to silence them and he gives them a testimony. And here it's the exact same phrase and he says, so Paul motioning with his hand said, men of Israel and you who fear God and then he's going to proceed with a message for them. And so we see here that there is um, the, the Jews and who they've gone to and there's no separation in the minds of uh, Paul and those who are going to uh, per- carry the gospel to the, the Jews, that there's any kind of real separation in their minds about them being like a different religion. Let me say that again more distinctly. We think in our minds of Jews as like a different thing than we are, right? We're, we are like a, a totally different sect of religion than they are, but they're not thinking of that way. They're thinking of it appropriately that Christianity in the church is the fulfillment, it's the substance of all that the Jews were always expected. So this is why we see them going to the synagogue. They're trying to find a place to start from a common ground. There's a common framework, that being uh, familiarity with the scriptures, and also there's a, a common worldview about the expectations of who God is and how he's going to save his people. And so Paul is qualified to not just tell the people about what the word of God says, but then to apply that truth to them. How has this come to its fullness? We know that Paul later on talks about his qualifications, not just as a Pharisee, but that he studied at the feet of Gamaliel, who was one of the most prominent rabbis of the days. And and so he says um, he's going to then proceed to give the word of God from what was existent, which was all of the Old Testament, the law and the prophets they had just read. And he's going to, from that, tell them who Jesus is and why he is the Savior. And so we're going to we're going to look at and examine how we should listen to a message from a pastor. Now, I would love it if you all listened to that, but I, I want to walk you through some of the things that I've pulled out from his message that will be helpful to us. So, not that you'll remember the geography, and if you're not a geography person, I totally understand, but here we are. Um, that first green dot is Antioch, where the church was founded. That's the one that Barnabas was sort of the head of, and he had brought Saul over from Tarsus, and so they had taught there for a year, but then they had dropped down to Cyprus, and that's where they had gone from the east to the west side, and come to the end of it, and that's where they had their encounter with Sergius Paulus, and then they go up to uh, Pamphylia, which is an area, that coastal area, and it literally means the place of all the tribes, that's an interesting thought, the place of all the tribes, because we know that the gospel is supposed to go to every tribe, nation. And Tong, and then they are going to move northward. And this is like a pretty treacherous journey. A lot of people speculate this is when John Mark turned back. That there's a, 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 a major rise in elevation. That this this pathway was fraught with all kinds of difficulty and robbers. And so, so who knows what it was that caused them to turn back? But here they are now in Antioch 2.0. Okay, and now they're they're in the synagogue, and they're and Paul's going to give a message. And here's how I see the themes of this message coming about. There is A repeated phrase that comes throughout this particular area of the text, which is about raising up. And it means different things at different times. But he he consistently uses this phrase to kind of pique our attention about what's happening. So you'll see that repeated. And then he's going to talk about these expectations that have come from prophecies and from the Scripture. And then the failure of those expectations that have come. And then there's a judgment because of failures. But there's ultimately a fulfillment of all the things that God has promised. Okay? Those are the themes in this. And then I just want you to, as we're walking through Paul's sermon, notice these areas as we, we, we're, we're talking through it. God is the primary mover. There's no explanation. There's no apology. There, there's no, it's assumed that God is the primary actor in all of these things. There's no explanations or qualifiers, which we often want to do. We say things like, God is in charge, but that doesn't mean he's really in charge. It means, okay, it's. You don't see that in here. It's just God is the primary mover, and it's an assumed truth. There's also some expectations and failure, and there's an angst that goes along with that. Because with expectation comes hope, right? There's hopes that have been put into a particular idea, a particular um, place, a particular um, hope for fulfillment of some kind of uh, a thing to come to pass that will be a way of feeling better or having salvation. And then he's going to use the Old Testament testament scriptures the prophecies and he's going to explain in the in the way that they understood them how these things are fulfilled in jesus so those are sort of the, the three things i just kind of want you to notice as we're going through under these themes that he's going to talk through so here we go let's pick it up in verse 17 which says the god of this people israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of egypt so just notice who who made them god chose the people and god made the people great during their stay in the land of egypt and with an uplifted arm, there's the raising of arms, he, he, he led them out. And in verse 18, it says, and for about forty years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying the seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land, that's the seven nations land, as inheritance. And so he's covered all of the time from Abraham uh, up into Joshua at this point. And all of this is assumed in really that first verse, which is the God of this people, Israel. Well, Israel wasn't a people, except for the fact that God had made a promise to Abraham. And Abraham had Isaac and Jacob, and Jacob becomes Israel. And then we move to Joseph, who actually got them to Egypt, where they were in slavery for a time. And he just sort of inserts at that point uh, the story of the Exodus, which is all centered on Moses. But... When we hear that, we just kind of presume the fact that, yes, Moses led them out, and and then Joshua led them into the promised land. They conquered everybody. And what's behind that are a a series of truths that I don't want us to miss. That it was God who preserved Moses as a baby. And it was God who uh, providentially had him raised in the house of Pharaoh. It was God who called Moses when he was in the wilderness. It was God who empowered Moses for leadership. It was God who brought the plagues on Egypt. It was God who preserved the Israelites from the plagues. It was God who divided the seas. It was God who crushed Pharaoh's army. It was God who provided wilderness food and water from a rock. It was God who came down at Mount Sinai to meet them. It was God who gave the law. It was God who gave the plans for the tabernacle. It was God who gave the sacrificial system. It was God who lit the altar uh, fire. It was God, 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 God. You see this? Okay, so that's all assumed in his saying that God had done all these things. And then in verse 18, we see that there's a problem though. There's the fact that the Israelites responded to God's goodness with complaining, with rebellion at the golden calf, despising Moses's leadership. They longed at some points to go back into slavery. They complained about the food that they were given. They were disloyal. They were impatient. They did not trust God for victory, even though he had promised them that he would give them victory over the nations. And we know that Moses himself was not uh, without his own failings. He had issues. He uh, was impatient, and he disobeyed, and he struck the rock twice. And for that reason, he was unable to enter the promised land. And that 40 years that's referenced there is going to be a recurring theme, the number 40, which uh, signifies a a time of trial or, or judgment. But Moses had promised during that time that God would raise up another one who would come after him. And he says, and to him you shall listen. So that's an important word uh, pointing forward to their expectations about who would be their true deliverer. And then looking at verse 20 now, it says, and all this took about 450 years, all that time. All the time from the beginning of slavery to the conquering and getting the land as inheritance was about 450 years. So you figure there in slavery for 400 years. They wandered in the wilderness for forty years, and it took about ten years to assume their property in the Promised Land. And it says, after that, he gave them judges, and until the uh, Samuel the prophet. And then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin. And for forty years, uh, uh, for forty years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David, the son of Jesse, uh, a man. of... Uh, it's because he said, I, I found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart who will do all of my will. So uh, this period is in now cov- covered from that time of taking the promised land. So the judges who delivered the word of God were not sufficient in the hearts of the Israelites to control them or to, to lead them. And so they began to get impatient. So Samuel was a powerful prophet, but even him, uh, under him, um, they, they demanded to be like him other nations. They wanted to They wanted to have a king, and so um, God granted them a king, but he was chosen, Saul was, by the discernment of man. What, what the, the measurement of what would be a good king was somebody that stood taller than everybody else and was powerful and was better looking, right? And that was how they chose Saul, but this ends up being really God's judgment because Saul ruled for 40 years. <laughs> this was a judgment because they wanted to be like the other nations, but when God Saul and David, a a man who would have the heart that he desired for his people, he brought David and he allowed David to rule over them. So the transition between Saul to David went like this. The the beginning of Saul's downfall was when he became impatient and they were going to go into battle. And he was waiting for Samuel to show up because he was supposed to be the one that offered the sacrifices. But he decided to offer the sacrifice himself and to go into battle. And the result of this was this word sacrifices you do uh, are sacrifices are are not what pleases God but obedience and then in David we have the 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 person that we're that we're told has um, was after God's own heart and what David says when he has his failure is that sacrifices you have not desired but a broken and contrite spirit is what's honored so that's what we see that God wanted for the leadership of his people so even David who was this ideal king who supposedly had the the right heart, had his own failings. We know that he failed with Bathsheba, and at best was manslaughter with um, her husband, and then he took a census when he wasn't supposed to, and so he was fraught with his own failings. And then his son Solomon came, and he was given the wisdom uh, to to govern and rule, and he uh, grew the kingdom to great prominence and glory, but he had his own failings, even though he built the temple. He did not honor God with his reign. And so Saul is talking about all of the different times they come in and they've had expectations about some someone giving them what they think they need. The Israelites believing that if they just had the right kind of king, that that would be... Uh, That would make them great, and that would be what they wanted. But then Saul rules poorly, and they get David. And David did things well, but he wasn't the perfect king, and he died. And so he was replaced by Solomon, who grew the kingdom, but he too had his failings. And so we see this cycle again of expectation and failure, expectation and failure. In verse 23, and it says, But of this man's offspring, God has brought Israel a savior Jesus, as he promised. And he just drops that in there like that's no big deal to them. But he's been rehearsing the history so far, and and, and when he says this, this would have sort of been a shock. God had made a promise to David during his reign that the, the, through his seed there would be a one who sits on the throne, and they would rule forever. So the expectation is there will be a forever king over Israel. And Jesus belongs in that role. We know that, but we come by way of that knowledge because we weren't having false expectations on the front end. And so this assertion is a big deal. And Jesus belongs to David by way of uh, being of the tribe of David and also by being the the child of the promise that David stewarded. And so verse 24 says, Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel, that his would be Jesus' coming. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel, and as John was finishing his course, uh, he said, "Who do you suppose that I am? I am not He. No, but after me one is coming, the sandals um, of whom uh, whose feet I am unworthy to untie." Now, we, John the Baptist was the forerunner of Christ, and they had come to John during his ministry while he was proclaiming uh, this baptism of repentance from sin, and they'd asked him, are you Elijah? And he'd said, I- I'm not Elijah. But we should probably add to that that he, what he meant was, I'm not Elijah in the way that you think Elijah has come, or the way that Elijah will, will appear. And the reason why they had the expectation, why they would ask this question at all, is because the last they had heard from any prophets was from Malachi. That's the last book of the Old Testament. In Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, the last prophetic words that we get are this. I will send my messenger, uh, behold I will send Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of their fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So that's the last thing they've heard prophetically and then there's some uh, several hundred year gap and then on to the scene comes John. And John should be recognized as two things. He's, he's the prophet of the New Testament, but he's the last prophet of the Old Covenant. Let me say that again carefully. He is the prophet that shows up for the New Testament. He's proclaiming a coming New Covenant, but he's the last prophet of the Old Testament. Jesus um, confirms this, and uh, he says that, uh, well, let me find that there it is in matthew 11 he says for all the law and the, pro- the prophets and the law prophesied until john they were all telling a story until john came and then in john and if you are willing we miss it and if you are willing to accept it he is elijah who is to come he who has ears let him hear so this is jesus affirming that john was the fulfillment of the malachi promise that before the day of the lord will come I will send Elijah to you, and he will declare to you a, a, a repentance. He'll he'll, uh, he'll prepare you, or he'll warn you, effectively. And that's what we see here, the the role that John plays. John is um, preaching in the wilderness. People are coming to him, and he's, he's telling them, repent, repent and believe. And then he makes this declaration that uh, I'm not... Elijah, but the one coming after me is the one that's more important. And so um, there's there's a, a point here where he's rejected. John's ministry is rejected. He's beheaded by the apostate Jewish ruler, Herod, and he's beheaded because he's called Herod out for his sin. And then we see John was not the Elijah that they expected. Elijah had been this prophet who had shut up the skies, and he infamously had this Uh, showdown with the prophets of Baal on uh, the mountain and he he slayed them all and he rid the land of false worship and idols and the, and, uh, the king and his wife Jezebel. And so John was declaring repentance in the same spirit as Elijah had declared repentance. And if you look at John's ministry in total, his rebuke was towards those who would not repent or would not recognize the kingdom had come or was coming. And he calls the spiritual leaders who show up a brood of vipers. And he says, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Which is exactly what was prophesied in, in Malachi. That before the day of the Lord, before the judgment comes, there, I will send you Elijah. And that's indeed what happened in John. Um, I have uh, Matthew 17, which gives a slightly perspective. There it is. Matthew 17, verse 11, 12. Elijah does come. And he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but they did to him whatever they pleased. And so also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. So you see, the issue here is that there was an expectation that there would be Elijah who would come. But their expectation was a false expectation based on their conception of what Elijah should look like when he arrives. And so they go and say, Are you Elijah? And he's saying, No, I'm not Elijah as you suppose Elijah will arrive. But Jesus confirms both times that John was that Elijah that was expected. And so because of their lack of recognition, they reject um, uh, John's ministry. And then from there, what we're going to find out is that from that point and at Jesus' crucifixion, there's a 40-year period. There's a trial here that's going to happen because of the rejection of this warning. So uh, verse 26 then is the declaration. So brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. Paul here is, is making reference to, the, to everything. The history, the prophecies, the prophets themselves, the kings, all of the story of Israel has embedded in it the message of salvation. As in, you should have known this was coming, but the problem was that they've missed that it came. So it's embedded in their story. And the climax of this story is what Paul has come to tell them has been written. That's what he's going to say is the good news. All of the law and prophets pointed to Christ. All of the elements in the Old Testament pointed to Christ. He is the substance of those shadows. The scriptures always spoke of Jesus, and this is what Jesus was constantly declaring to the spiritual leaders who had missed this fact, and he said, you don't recognize me because you don't know the word of God, and you don't know the Father, and therefore you don't know me. He says, before Abraham was, I am. He says, you do not hear my voice because you do not recognize the Father's voice. All of these things are ways of Jesus saying, I was always in the Old Testament, but you've missed it because you've misread the scriptures, and you have false expectations, so in verse 27, it says this, For those who lived in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. He says, what we just did here has been happening over and over and over. And all the people in Jerusalem and the rulers, they didn't recognize that Jesus was the fulfillment of these things. And because of that, they fulfilled the them by condemning him. So it says, and then they found in him no guilt worthy of death. And so they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree, and they laid him in a tomb. So they missed the leaves, they missed the trees, they missed the forest, they missed everything. And the probably the most impressive I, I can't find the right word. The 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 oddest thing, the most baffling or bewildering thing about the fact that Jesus fulfilled all of the prophecies of the Old Testament is not so much that he was born in the right place or at the right time, but I think it's the fact that all of the suffering aspects of Jesus were fulfilled by the fact that they did not recognize that he fulfilled the Messianic prophecies. He was um, explicit prophecies about the Messiah, which foretold his suffering, rejection, his judgment by sin and Uh, Sinners being mocked, being uh, counted among the criminals. All of those things could only come by way of their lack of recognition of who Jesus was. And so there's a failure here. They did not recognize the Messiah. And in not recognizing him, they misjudge and they mistreat him, which thereby fulfilled the prophetic messages about him. That's a weird inception thing if you think about it too long. And so what happens is then this judgment will come on to the people. And they have 40 years until the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. And Paul here makes a reference back to Deuteronomy. Cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. And he says they took him down from the tree. Noting that Jesus had become the cursed one for us. And that is good news. Because he's going to get now to the good news. But God raised him from the dead. God promised, God fulfilled. And he's going to use that raised again now twice in verse 31 it says, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem and we are now, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us their children by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. God, God raised him up in the resurrection, that's he, he raised him from the dead. And then in verse 33, it says, and then he, he raised him up. And that raised him is a different kind of raise. It means to to put him into prominence or to stand upright, to make him important. And then he quotes Psalm 2, which was read at the beginning. And so why does Paul zero in on this moment and say, uh, in Psalm 2, verse 7, proves that Jesus is God's son and that he is the Messiah. And so uh, I want you to look with me. At Psalm 2, starting in verse 6, it says, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So what's happening is that at the beginning of the psalm, we see that the nations rage, the people plot in vain, they don't want the rule of God, and God, the one in heaven, he laughs. And he says, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And then he says, And I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son, and today... I have begotten you. So that today moment is important because we, we might be prone to think that the moment where Jesus is the begotten son is the moment where Jesus was born in Bethlehem. But that's not what's being pointed to. The today of this moment is when Jesus received all the promises of the Messiah. All the promises of nations and rulership, a throne that would not be diminished it would never end. So it's this post-resurrection that Jesus becomes the unique begotten one uh, of the Father, the Son. Eternal rule, the nations as his inheritance. This happens at the ascension. When Jesus goes, he's raised, and he sits now at the right hand of the Father. Scriptures like Hebrews 1, 5, 5, 5 2 Samuel seven sixteen, is that prophecy that there will be a ruler in the line of David who would rule forever. And what happens between this period of Jesus' being raised up and God raising him up then to be the prominent ruler of everything is, guess what, 40 days. And we find out at the beginning of Acts that during those 40 days, Jesus is doing one specific thing with the disciples. It says he's teaching them through the scriptures how he is the fulfillment of all of the scriptures. And he opened their mind to understand these things. Jesus opened their mind to realize what was always true, so that they can make these kinds of uh Connections for people who had expectations. All the scriptures speak of Jesus. They were always all about him. He is the substance of everything that was prophesied. He is the fulfillment of all of the expectations. Not only was Jesus the word made flesh, but he is the prophetic word made more sure. Verse 34 says, And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption. He has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. This is a quote of Isaiah 55, verse 3. And then he goes on to say, Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. So he he quoted that psalm 2.7, and then he gives a promise, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. And then he says, there's another promise though. There's another promise that was made to David. And here's what it was. It was, you will not let your holy one see corruption. And then he's going to move to an argument that therefore is an application kind of statement. Paul is asserting what kind of blessings would be had by the Holy One. So he goes on, verse 36. For David, after he had served the purposes of God in his own generation, he fell asleep and he was laid with his fathers and he saw corruption. So he, he, get get the logic of, of Paul. There was a promise made to, to David. There would be a ruler in your line that would rule forever. And to him will receive all of the covenant blessings, all of the covenant promises, and he'll inherit those things. And then we know that that has to be a forever kind of person that inherits those blessings to rule forever. Because in verse uh, in that verse 35, that quote there, is he saying because you promised that the holy one would not see corruption, but then he goes and he says but David saw corruption. David died. He's in a tomb, and he decayed, and so there's a problem here. He can't receive those blessings. But he says the resolution for this is God. Uh, but but he whom God raised up did not see corruption. So we have David, who had the promise, and who was who who had prophesied that the holy one that would receive the promises would not see corruption, and. The problem is that David died and he saw corruption, so that hope was dashed, but Jesus, who God raised up, did not see corruption. So you can see the logic here that Paul's laying down, that he is the one that's worthy and has received these covenant blessings. The resurrection is the linchpin of the whole argument. Without the resurrection, the life and death are important, but he's just another prophet that died at the hands of the Israelites. So because of Jesus' life and death, and then because Jesus, Jesus was vindicated in the resurrection, he's now glorified, and he's seated at the right hand. And so he receives the name that is above every other name. And so in 2 Corinthians 1.20, we have this statement by Paul, for all the promises of God find their yes and amen in him, that being Jesus. Everything that was promised is true in Jesus, and that's why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. Jesus was the Holy One. Jesus was the appointed one. Jesus was the anointed one. So here's what Paul is going to declare. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sin is proclaimed to you. And by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed from the law of Moses. He's getting to the real heart of the gospel. And when he references all of the things that they could not be freed from. He's not just talking about the Ten Commandments. He's talking about all the implications of what Moses did, which is freeing them out of slavery, but then also giving them a sacrificial system. And yes, he gave them the law, but there was also a promised land that was going to happen. And then there was rulership that was going to come and prophetic words from the Lord. And so all of these things had put a weight of expectation that was not satisfied anywhere else. And he says, but through him everyone who believes is freed from everything which you could not be freed from by the law of Moses. Because the law can only, even though it's perfect, all it can do is condemn. All it can do is show you that you're not perfect. And so we live in this bubble of felt needs. And we think that the gospel primarily talks about how our our main expectations of life can be satisfied or our longings. Paul's going to give us an important word here. But beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. And so he's going to quote Habakkuk. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. For I'm doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. That last prophecy was given from Habakkuk as he was telling the, the people of Israel that they were going to be conquered by another nation that was their enemy because of their disbelief, because of their disobedience. And he says, even if I told you, you wouldn't understand, you wouldn't believe it. And so Paul's message here is a rehearsal of all of their history, reminding them of the failures of their expectations. And it's a full revelation of Christ through the Old Testament. And we need to be reminded the same way that they were revealed, or the the same way that they had revelation at that moment. The deception of false expectations will cause us to not recognize the gospel. And salvation when it's when it's presented, even if it's told to us explicitly. The rehearsal of all of the history of Israel is at best for Israel a reminder of the failure of all that man can do. Even at even in the best of scenarios, it still falls short. And so the warning here that Paul leaves the people, this is the end of the sermon, and there's a response to it, and we'll get to that next week. But he's effectively saying this, don't miss the recognition of the gospel. It's always been there, but perhaps you didn't recognize it when it came. And in not recognizing it, it actually fulfilled all of the things about the Messiah that were foretold. So there's, there's the warning put out here. And so in our day, I, I said, we kind of come by way of this information at the very far downstream. We're like New Testament people. We get it. Yeah, Jesus is the Savior. We get it. And so... There's, there's been a, a real strong uh, dichotomy made between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And so breaking these apart, and, uh, there was a man by the name of Marcion, Marcion, not Martian, like from Mars, right? Marcion, he, he had this heresy where he said, well, the, the God of the New Testament is different than the God of the Old Testament. And what Paul has said through this whole exposition is that that's impossible. It's the same God. And he was always promising the same thing. And the problem here is not that we think that God is presented in a different way in the New Testament, but that we actually make him distinct as though the God of the Old Testament is somehow a different God. And so the Old Testament is what helps us understand who Jesus is. All of the things that were expected to deliver the nation, all of the hopes that they had placed different things in, Jesus is. Jesus is those things. Jesus is the deliverer. Jesus is the law. Jesus is the promised land. Jesus is the true and better prophet. Jesus is the word made flesh. Jesus is the good king. Jesus is the light in the darkness. Jesus is the high priest. Jesus is the one and only sacrifice. Jesus is the temple. Jesus has the name greater than every name. Jesus is everything. That's effectively what Paul has pointed out. What Israel had expectations about is all put away. If we had a great nation... No, you'd still be in slavery. If, if we could be free, no, you still can't obey. If we had a law, no, we won't obey that either. If we had a land, no, we're afraid to fight and conquer for it. If we had a leader, no, we want a better leader. We want a king. Oh, well, if we had a greater king, no, we don't want that one either. Israel missed recognizing the Savior because of their familiarity with their own expectation. And our danger is familiarity with the end of the story and repeating the mistakes that they walked through. Ignoring the mistakes of false expectations in the Old Testament and going back to those to try and find a new expectation of fulfillment. So we see there's a lack of recognition possible on both sides. In First Peter 2, verse 7. Peter's quoting important psalm here. He he says it actually in his uh, sermon, his response to the Sanhedrin. But he says, the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, Jesus is this important thing. He is the stone that the builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. The idea here is this. They looked at, they looked at this rock, and they said that doesn't fit the thing we're trying to build, and so they cast it aside. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, the foundation, but it's become a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word, as they were destined to do. The, the idea here is this, that the rejection of Jesus came by way of their lack of recognition of what he was, and they cast him aside thinking there was some other thing that could fulfill the need for what they were trying to build. And the thing is that they were trying to build the wrong thing. And so the warning here is that our recognition is tied very dearly and nearly to our expectations and having false expectations of what fulfillment can and should look like. And so the warning here this morning is by way of Paul saying, don't let this be true of you. Lest what is said in the prophets becomes true. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and you will perish is the, is the result of that. I am doing a work in your days, which was Jesus. He, he did a work. He came and fulfilled all these things. But even being told that that was the truth, that that was the salvation, they scoff at it. And they say, even if, if, even, even if one is told to you, even if the truth is revealed explicitly, you will reject it nonetheless. And the way that we reject the truth is because we don't recognize it. And we we don't recognize it because of the false places we put our expectations. Let's pray. Father, I pray this morning that our expectations do not keep us from seeing.